This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host. Our guest today is Dr. Christine Catapon. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and works full-time at the Counseling and Psychological Services Center at Stanford University. She is the current vice president of the Asian American Psychological Association and has held numerous leadership positions in the Philippinex American community. So today we're gonna to talk about the impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on substance use among college students and the increased use of self-medication due to several unique factors that college students have faced because of the pandemic. So I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. It was great to talk to Christine about her direct experience with these students and, and what they're going through and the difficult struggles it is in this time, especially with the pandemic. And don't forget, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, if you're getting a lot out of it, please leave a review in iTunes, wherever you get your podcast. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure and helps people find this information. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addictive Mind Podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind Podcast. I have a great guest today. Dr. Christine Catapon, and she is a licensed clinical psychologist who works specifically in the University Counseling Center for the past 12 years, working with college students, dealing with all types of issues, I imagine. Yes. And we're going to talk a little bit about your experience working with college students, working with them through addiction, and what you're kind of seeing in the current dynamic and the current flow of everything. So, Christine, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about you, how you got into this work, what you like about mm -hmm. this work, what you enjoy doing it, why. Sure. Well, hello. I am a clinical psychologist, as you mentioned. This is actually my second career, but I used to work in pharmaceuticals and it just didn't have the same kind of oomph for me. So I found myself on this journey. And I think what's drawn me to college students is I want to think that I'm like perpetually young myself there you go. and working with college students keeps me young and hip to the jive of the current yeah. climate. But it's so rewarding, I think, working with college students because they're young enough adults to be malleable and open and flexible to new ideas. And yet they're old enough where I don't have to deal with their parents. So it's for me, I really like that perfect little age spot, you know, and 
they yeah, get to work on identity. Yeah, I've just really enjoyed working with them for the past 12 years. I'm also a frequent speaker for Philippinex American Psychology and Mental Health. And I'm also the current vice president of the Asian American Psychological Association. So I do a lot of work in my community, but I also do a lot of work, you know, just spreading information about mental health and reducing the stigma, most recent of which was getting to be a panelist at Comic-Con in San Diego this summer, using my nerd knowledge, my personal nerd knowledge, there you um, go. to talk about how I connect with college students. So it's a population I really enjoy working with. And having been in uh, college counseling settings for the last 12 years, it's incredible the amount of shift and growth and change that has happened. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with accessibility to information on social media, on the Internet. Like I personally didn't have email until my last quarter of, uh, of college. Right. I'm like, what is this thing? <laughs> so. Right. Imagining what some of my students go through now with the advent of social media, you know, that has contributed a significant, it's just a significant stressor in a lot of college students when they're already exploring their identity, trying to figure out who they are. And then they have all of this information telling them that they're not enough, they're not doing enough. And when you work in such prominent universities where the pressure is high, like, for example, I work at Stanford, it's incredible, the amount of pressure. And I um, what I wanted to talk, yeah, you know, nothing that I've ever had to experience. Right, right. And with the pandemic, that in itself has just added so much more. So. I think the past three years of this pandemic has exacerbated the mental health concerns of so many of our college students when identity is so important, when developing those social skills is so important. And then you have this pandemic that basically took away that experience, put more pressure on them to try to learn in a very competitive setting. And what we're seeing now is a lot more self-medication because people just didn't yeah. have access to their normal coping strategies or yeah. the social support. So I'm hoping I, to touch on that. Yeah, I, I'm glad you're here to be able to talk about that because so much of you know the work I do and and with this podcast is getting out information on mental health and and all of that. And we have this younger generation growing up in some really, in in my thought, really challenging times that are really different from probably when you and I grew up. It's so different. As you were mentioning, the the social media, all of that has changed the dynamic tremendously of how we operate in the world and how we think about ourselves and how we see ourselves. And then this crazy pandemic and, and the pressure. I, I think I don't know. I think these college kids right now, they have it really tough. I think it's hard. That's just my first impression, but I, I want to hear from you and and kind of dig into that. So what are you seeing with the, I want to call them kids, but I know they're young adults. I mean, I kind of, maybe that's my own age, but I want to call them kids because I almost want to see them like that, but I know they're not, they're young adults. And, you know, they're coming in with whatever it is. And can you kind of set the framework, I guess, of, of what we're seeing and what sure. you're seeing? Yeah. Well, when I think about when I first started about 12 years ago, you know, social media was just starting out and 
there wasn't so much politically, culturally being blasted out there. And at least in terms of mental health, what I've seen is an increase in mental health concerns just without all of the social media and political and cultural and societal concerns that have been happening. So a lot more people are become, and I don't know if it's a, you know, combination of people just being more aware of mental health and doing their best to reduce the stigma, just like you're doing with your podcast. Like, let's make people aware that this is actually legitimate and a concern. So what I've seen is an increase in mental health concerns and increase in hospitalizations over the last 12 years. It wasn't so frequent when I first started, and now it is it is quite frequent. And again, I'm glad that people are reaching out to be able to get support, but that has already been on the uptick. And then what we've been seeing over the last, you know, I guess seven or eight years, the advent of social media, Instagram, TikTok, all of these things. I, I shudder to think of if this was happening when I was in college, because I would be mortified to think of all of yeah. the mistakes I made in college and having that exist on the internet forever. And I've made a lot. You know, yeah. So, you know, that's um, funny. You even say that because I was having a yeah. conversation with a, a friend of mine and we were, mm -hmm. we were talking about that exact point that you know, I have young kids right now and everything that they do is going to be documented. And like you said, I made a lot of mistakes and I'm, I'm lucky enough. It was at a time when there wasn't all this way to document it. I can remember them and learn from them, but I can also get distance from them and grow from them. And I would imagine these kids now, they, they don't get that opportunity and, and it's with them forever in a way. Yes. Right. And then the advent of all of these trolling comments, you know, yeah. a lot of cyberbullying, a lot of comparisons, a lot of, you know, people trying to post something and they're just met with all this vitriol in the comments. And it's so hard, especially at this, you know, young adult range to, to like really feel comfortable in yourself. I, I still think you know, even though it's been many decades ago, I think about how insecure I was as a young adult and not really knowing who I was and wanting to let the experiences of college dictate that for me. But now today's students are just getting influenced by hateful comments or comparisons or photoshopping or just hearing what everybody else has. And I'm glad I didn't know what everybody else has. Right. I got to just be in my bubble and focus on myself. And so we have that piece of social media really increasing depression and anxiety for this feeling of not enoughness. Now, again, I'm not a researcher. I'm just basing this on the hundreds, maybe thousands at this point of college students right. that I worked with. And it's so interesting how much of that comes from, I see this on social media. I see this on social media. My friends, you know, are telling me to get off social media. I'm like, you know, it has its place. It has very positive attributes. But when you're not sure of who you are, if you're not sure about who you want to be in the world, it can be very detrimental because it's such a strong influence. So we have that component and the increase of awareness for mental health. And then we have the pandemic. 
And the pandemic had so many layers to it. We, first of all, you know, being a part of the Asian American Pacific Islander population, there was such a rise in anti-Asian hate Yeah, as a result of the pandemic and the messages that were being put out there. And we combine yep. that with the fact that many of the people in our community are first responders. And so, you know, we're putting our lives out on the line to try to help people manage the COVID pandemic. And they're having to balance all of this while taking care of people who may hate them, who may like say all of these terrible things to them and still treating them because that's what we do. So I've been personally affected. I've had loved ones die from the COVID pandemic. And yet as a psychologist, I'm trying to still support people while managing same stressors that many of my clients are experiencing. Yeah. So I I would imagine in a minority community and you got the social media and some of this stuff that has come out where people can just put their hatred, their bigotry, their racism, just right out front and you know in that way and it's so incredibly painful and and just awful and it's one of these really dark sides of our connected world and that just sounds awful and i would imagine these kids i keep calling them kids i gotta stop doing that these young adults (laughs) they could be my kids i'm old enough to be i I know i just you know i it's it's like i guess i just refer to because it's i just feel so tender yeah. for them. I, you know, I want to, yeah, I want to help them, you know, mm-hmm. but these young adults coming in and, and they're hearing all of this stuff and then they got the pressure. They're at a high, if they're in college, they got the pressure to perform there, to get their stuff done, to compete. And once again, I'm going, wow, this is really, really yeah. overwhelming. And you've got this kind of crazy world where you can't connect mm-hmm. anybody in the, in the pandemic. And I, right. I knew that impacted me a lot. I mean, it impacted so many people, that isolation, and it was awful. Yeah. I mean, what I was seeing, so it's funny. We went into a virtual counseling, and we never thought that was a possibility, but clearly in necessary times, we found a way to make it work. And I was probably my busiest that first summer of the pandemic, uh, usually in university counseling centers, summers are pretty like mild, you know, it's like we're kind of on summer break too. But no, we actually had more people, or at least I did, coming in because of accessibility and because of need. And so what some of my students were experiencing is not only do they have to worry about their own personal safety, if they identified as AAPI or, you know, a lot of my black students, it was also around the time of George Floyd. And, oh, like for all the BIPOC students I was experiencing, there was just so much fear and uncertainty. And yet you still have to like go on with life. And so now you're attending this very high stakes university. I I worked at a UC, uh, University of California setting before this. And so now you're going into college. And if you're a first year, you don't know how to adjust to college. You don't know how to adjust to expectations. Everything is online. You've never learned how to do anything online. And all of a sudden it's college level. And so we saw a lot of people failing and a lot of people not knowing how to self-motivate. We also saw a lot of loneliness and depression because they never had the opportunity to socialize. 
And this yeah. went on for two years. You know, I think colleges have just started coming Com- on coming board back, yeah. for this coming year. So I was seeing a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety because people were failing and just didn't feel prepared for this new way of learning. Plus, they were isolated. Plus, they were worried about their family who may have been first responders or might bring in COVID before we had the vaccines. And so everybody's on high alert. Who did you go out with? Who did you see? Are you wearing masks and not wanting to risk you know, harming family members, especially if people in the family were first responders. So college students were dealing with these life and death situations, this pressure to succeed, to perform. And really, a lot of the incoming first years that started in 2020, they didn't get their high school graduation. That is such a mark of, you know, of adulthood. They didn't get to have prom. They didn't have to have graduation. And now they have to like go to this shell of an experience for college. So that was that. And then we started having all of these racist incidents against various members of the community. And at the time of the Atlanta shootings, I had just started my vice president elect position in AAPA. And it was supposed to be like a gentle onboarding for my position. No, we were slammed with needs for statements, with needs for all of this. And so when I was talking about earlier, like we are going through the same things that our clients were. And when the Atlanta shootings happened, it was so devastating. And the pressure from my organization to like say something and needing to be present for my clients. And that was around the time that one of my best friends passed away from COVID because we didn't have the vaccines yet. You know, it was just so much. So much. And And to see all that like play out and then to be on, I think as a, as a mental health provider on the front lines of it, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to hold it together Right. Because you're this first responder. You're helping all of these young adults who are in these such precarious situations and such uncertainty facing harm. Right. And and mm-hmm. and, and you yourself are facing that. And then mm-hmm. you have to kind of hold it together. I mean, it's it's just so overwhelming. It's just it, yeah. it is. It's like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And I'm an adult. I'm a mental health professional and all of these things. So imagine my young adult clients going through very similar things, but not having coping strategies, not having social support, having the additional pressure to perform and succeed because their family relies on it. And when I think about, you know, empathy and placing myself in their shoes, I just felt so deeply for the students I was working for because it's a dire situation. Yeah. So it's understandable that with the lack of coping 
the lack of social support, and truly isolation because you couldn't go anywhere before the vaccines came out because you had to make sure that you didn't bring it home because it would kill you if you did. Yeah. Can you see why people were tar- you know, were starting to turn to self-medication? Yeah. So we saw a lot of people self-medicating because they couldn't sleep, because they were anxious all the time. They were fearful for their family, for themselves, feeling like failures because they couldn't succeed in this setting that they were never set up um, for success. For success. I mean- you know, I, I, how I mean, I just imagine how hard that I mean, as a young person, you're trying to figure out all of your identity, you're trying to figure out where you're going to go in the world. And I, there's all this crazy uncertainty in it. And then you're trying to do this in a way that no one ever, has ever done it before. I mean, that is just so overwhelming. And so yeah. difficult. And I, I, it makes sense in a way, how a lot of these college kids would start using substances to cope with that anxiety, that pain, that uncertainty to escape and avoid it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's already high in college students, even prior to the pandemic. But what was so fascinating was that there was a recent study that talked about how alcohol use in college students fell during the pandemic, whereas marijuana use increased. And the study found that the social component of drinking alcohol likely played a big part. You know, many of my students that come in, you know, a lot of them will be drinking alcohol. It's social, partying, all of that kind of stuff. But when you take away that social component, you take away the ability to go to social gatherings and party and typical college behavior, You take away that, it's like, well, what does this do for me? And so turning to marijuana more, which is easier to do when you're alone. Yeah. That's kind of what you saw. Or if anything, marijuana used to be lower than alcohol. And so it kind of did this evening out where it was used at about the same rate. Yeah. And what are these college students coming in and saying to you when when they're going through this and they're and they're seeing this happen and they're and it's starting to to play out? What are the stories they're telling you? And yeah. where how do they see the world and their place in the world? You know, it depends on where they were when this pandemic started. I think the people who had the hardest time were either the sophomores in high school who, you know, missed out on their last two years of high school and then came to college in person after the pandemic was over. I know it's not over, but things have loosened up. And all of a sudden they feel like a sophomore going straight into college with no preparation whatsoever and being set up to fail. And then there's those who started college in the pandemic. First two years was all online, all virtual, not having made friends, complete lack of social skills for many of our students who were virtually learning. And then coming into junior year with, you know, just flooded with all of this social interaction and learning not on their own time, which, you know, many of the classes were asynchronous and they could just kind of study on their own terms. Now they have to actually get up, beat traffic, get to class on time, not know the campus at all, even though they've been enrolled for the last few years. So, 
I think anytime there was like a, a, a really big shift for the students, they struggled the most. And so what I've been seeing are the students who are coming out of that huge shift from this past fall quarter, because that was like really the first time that a lot of the universities started right. being on campus right. and just saying, I didn't know how to deal. I don't know how to be social. I've forgotten. Everybody scares me. I have all this anxiety. I have all this sadness because I don't feel like I can succeed. And so now I can't sleep and I'm drinking to fall asleep. Yeah. Or I don't have any friends. And so I'm just smoking to like dull the pain. It's it's very much a coping strategy. It's very much a way of checking out so that they don't have to face their really terrible reality of of how this whole system has been timed. So I'm yeah. seeing a lot of people self-medicating to try to go to sleep because their anxieties are keeping them from being able to fall asleep. And if they can't fall asleep, how can they function? And, and how are they going to compete in this very competitive environment? If you're not getting sleep, you're numbing out, you're full of anxiety. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to maintain, um, a, a, a class load and concentrate and focus on these complex tasks and to learn if, if you're, yeah. if you're having all that. So what do you do to, to help them? You know, I'm, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, this, this, it feels bleak. <laughs> it feels so bleak. I do want to say that. And, and I want to have hope and I, and I know there's always hope out there and there's always things that we can do and there's ways we can help, but with these, how do you give them that hope? How do you help them yeah. through this? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I acknowledge them for reaching out to help for help. It's not easy, even for people who don't abuse substances. I mean, I think asking for help in such an individualistic and independent society as the United States, it's hard. It's hard to say, oh, I can't do this on my own anymore. So the first thing I do is just acknowledge the heck out of them. Just like, you know, I'm so glad that you reached out and you don't have to do this alone. And we can absolutely give you alternative ways of dealing with this if this is not what you're happy doing. And so it also takes a village. You know, it's not going to be me working alone, like just us in a bubble trying to do the work. So I will work with them on the therapy front many times for students. They're not just coming in with substance use. That is like the secondary thing. They're usually coming in with depression, anxiety, maybe some psychotic breaks, because this is also the time that that happens, this age range. And they're using substances to cope. So, you know, we, we're not trained as substance abuse counselors and clinicians. We're very much generalists. So normally we will focus on what caused the need for such coping strategies in the first place. And many times I'll use what we call motivational interviewing to even get a sense of where they're at. Cause I want to get them to a place of ambivalence. They may have like thought everything was bleak. There's no point, but if we can kind of sneak in that little bit of hope, if we can sneak in that little bit of, but you came here, you came here looking for something that tells me that there is some part of you that wants this to get better. And I'll capitalize on that. Yeah, right? there's that little piece of that. resilience, that little piece of yes. resilience. And you're like, come yeah. on, we're going to pull on like that as much as we here. can. Yeah, exactly. You're still enrolled in school. You're doing your best. And now you've reached out for help. And by good, by God, we're going to give you that help as, as best as we can. 
And then it's not going to just be me. I'm like, did you know that there are resources on campus? I mean, many campuses do have departments that are specifically for substance use, like support. You know, I love the acronym that we have here at Stanford. It's called SUPER. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what does it stand for? I need to look it up because I'm still new to everything. But I think it's um, it's like substance use programs um, and resources. You know, right, that kind right. Of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, but we also have case managers at the counseling center that will help people get connected to treatment centers if that's what they need. And then we'll also have lists of, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and, you know, um, different communities that they can start to connect with. Yes. And like help facilitate that just by letting them know. And also we, we see a lot of success with peer programming. You know, if they won't listen to us because we're like the adults and the authorities, but sometimes they'll listen to their peers. And so many universities will have peer-to-peer mentoring, just a place to, to talk to people. So this doesn't get fixed, you know, in a vacuum of a confidential space at um, the counseling center. It's going to be a lot of different resources. And that's how much it's important to us because we believe in the success as well as the health and well-being of our students because they can't be successful if they're struggling with mental health and substance use. So it's like holding them up a little bit, like, you know, and and all of any human being, all of us uh, as human beings, we need to be held sometimes because we can't hold ourselves all the time and like creating Mm -hmm. that space. And I would imagine, you know, where social media comes in and, you know, it's so slanted to presenting this positive view of everything you know what i mean like everybody's perfect and they got it all together and you know and it's like but it's just so unhuman but you know when you're comparing yourself to that that's what you you think you're supposed to meet and then kind of realizing like that's not even really real i mean it's just Mm -hmm. it's not real so yeah i actually you know in my comic-con panel one of the audience members asked so what can we do to manage our anxiety. And I said, consider taking a social media diet or taking a break and being very mindful about what you are ingesting because it's not just substances we're ingesting. We're ingesting negative feedback. We're ingesting comparisons. We're ingesting all these trolling comments. And we want to purge that out of our systems too. So I encourage my students like, hey, Social media can be good, but you can choose what to be uplifted by. So I encourage students to follow people whose posts, organizations whose posts are uplifting because we need more of that. We have enough from newspapers and magazines and all of that. We, We don't need more of that. And even just like, Taking a break. I mean, honestly, many of my students who have come in with, you know, substance abuse concerns, when they take a break from social media after a month, they're like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much better because they're not constantly reminded of being less than or not enough. And they can just focus on themselves, shutting out all of this negative influence 
from people who don't even matter anyway. Yeah. Get out of the doom scrolling. That's, a, yes, <laughs> that's what I've heard. Of, like, exactly. don't doom scroll. I mean, it, and it's so right. tempting to doom scroll, especially when you're feeling panic and you're worried and you don't know the situation or how things are going to go. Like, you know, you start scrolling on these things and it's it's just so negative. One question yeah. I have is, is what yeah. about how do you help minority communities, the Filipino community, mm-hmm. LGBTQ plus community, BIPOC community, how do you help them specifically in in these situations and what and what you were describing earlier? Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because those communities are the ones who probably have the most negative perception about mental health. And as someone who has those identities, that's why I feel it's very important for me to help reduce the stigma, you know, just, I think up till like 1970s, homosexuality was still a disorder in the DSM. Thank God it's not anymore. It's crazy to to even think that, but yeah. And that's not that long ago. Yeah. So there's a lot of mistrust um, for mental health professionals among the LGBTQ community. And then as far as BIPOC and particularly AAPI folks, you know, like, why would you turn to a professional? You're supposed to turn to God. You're supposed to turn to your family. And I think when there's representation available saying, hey, I'm a doctor. I mean, I will milk the doctor. Sometimes it just has, right. you know, a lot yeah. of the influence, you know, we're the elder, you know. So, mm-hmm. okay, I'm the doctor saying that this is legitimate. Yeah. I have the student loans to prove it. But this is real. And I think a positive thing that came out of the pandemic is that people had no choice but to go seek therapy because they couldn't avoid their mental health concerns any longer. They didn't have their social skills. They didn't have their coping skills. And it's like when you're left with just just your own devices, they're like, oh, I think I'm sad and I have nothing to distract myself. I think yeah. I'm depressed or anxious. There's nothing to, and I can't talk to my family because they're contributing to it. So I might as well talk to someone. So if anything, I think it reduced the stigma because so many people were doing it and sharing it and, oh my gosh, this helped. And, oh, right. and I'm also talking to a cutie BIPOC person or a Philippine X person. And which is why I really try to take the opportunity to speak publicly about this speak in newspaper articles speak on pbs speak on your podcast i'm like yeah you know, so i know people, there's many of yeah, us out there <laughs> right and, and then they can see it and they can see that like getting exactly. mental health there's resources out there where you can mm-hmm. fit and you can get the resources that work for you yes. that understand you specifically and the struggles that you know you're going through that might get ignored by the majority community or not seen all the time in the majority community. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Or many of my students can't relate to, you know, unfortunately a majority culture therapist. I mean, many of us are trained to be as culturally sensitive as possible, but there's something comforting sometimes for some folks about having someone who has a shared identity and not having to explain why you can't disrespect parents or you can't do this or you can't do that and i think like 
I was saying earlier, the representation is so important. Like, oh, you mean there are people out there? Because we, you know, based on what we see in TV, most therapists are either this wise, elder Black woman. I don't know why that's such a trope. (laughs) When we right. need more black clinicians in our field, yeah, but absolutely. Ted Lasso and you know, uh, crazy ex girlfriend. I mean, like, there's just so many. I, I'm just like, wow, that's, that's a lot. Oh, never have I ever so many, which is wonderful, but that's also not the reality. And so, I think the more public outreach that we can do to reduce stigma and to say, oh my gosh, there is one. I mean, I will share with you, shamelessly plug the Asian American Psychological Association. We have thousands of members who identify as AAPI, who work in research and teach in colleges and provide therapy. We are out there. I think we are just now kind of hitting our stride of riding the wave of, oh, mental health is okay. It it doesn't have to be stigmatized. And now that more people are open to it, more people are talking about it, it's a prime time to advertise that this kind of support is available. Counseling centers, you know, are more diverse than I've ever seen, but I, I fortunately am in California, but that's not the case across most of the U.S. Yeah. So... There's still a lot of work to be done, but I do think the hope is there because more people are reaching out. They are getting better. It is a period of adjustment, but just the fact that, you know, it's like, oh, is this an option? Didn't know that was even an option. I didn't know there was counseling when I was in college. Right. (laughs) They were there. Right. I didn't know. And and I hear your, your hope in your voice. Like, I, I love that. Like, I guess like even doing like this podcast, it's to better humanity and to to bring this to all this work to all of us so that we can all be better and, and work through all of these things and to be able to have a voice. I love hearing your, your hopefulness about it, especially, you know, these last couple of years have been pretty dark and pretty, yeah, just dark. I don't know how else to yeah. say it, but just pretty hard. And so I love to hear your voice and you share it and 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 bring it out so that everybody yeah. can get help. Well, I'll tell you what brings me hope. It's seeing that students are resilient and they make it through. I probably get most of my inspiration from the students that I work with because I've seen them come in uh-huh. and struggle and they're on the verge of failing and they don't know how to stop utilizing substances and they're not speaking with their family. And I'm not saying I'm a miracle worker. I'm more like Yoda, but (laughs) you know, at the end of all of this, they have the skills, they have the tools and they have changed their lives for the better. I've seen people coming in with crippling anxiety and somehow find a way to pass all of their classes when they were failing, when they started, I'm seeing people finally give up alcohol and marijuana because they have found better coping strategies and better social support. So, you know, for all of the bleakness that happens, the hope is, and what I've been like privy to for the last 12 years is all of this wonderful resilience and hope and um, inspiration. Like, wow, I can't believe you started out here and you are now here. And it's just, that's what gives me hope. And that's what I'm hoping to convey to your audience. It's like, just 
just ask for help. You don't have to do this alone. There are many people out there who want to support you. And, you know, sometimes therapists aren't a good fit, you know. Yeah. But keep shopping around. You're the consumer. Keep, find another one. You know? Find another one. Just, just I tell find another everybody. one. That's okay. You won't find another another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Therapists are humans too, and not all, all of them do they connect. Um, exactly. Not everybody appreciates my nerd culture and your nerd metaphor, Comic-Con, but, you know. I, I, I'm, I'm a fellow nerd. I like Comic-Con stuff. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. That you got to be on a, yeah, that's so cool that you yeah. got to be on a panel at Comic-Con. That's that's amazing. And it was the um, first time I was ever at Comic-Con too. So that was oh, mind-blowing. It's, it's, yeah, I, I would imagine. So usually, I mean, you, you kind of just answered it, but usually yeah. I ask a question as we get to the end. If there's mm-hmm. someone out there struggling, maybe a college student who's listening to this podcast and they're having a hard time. Maybe they are struggling using substances in a way that's destructive to them, or maybe they're just struggling with anxiety, or maybe they're just feeling hopeless. I think you kind of answered it, but I'm going to throw it out there. If you could tell them one thing, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? I want to tell them that they have the answers inside them. They do. They are the experts on themselves. And when you come to therapy, it's not us telling you what to do. It's about helping you remove the barriers that are keeping you from accessing those answers. So to be able to do that in a non-judgmental space where we're not going to judge anything that you've done, because really, who are we to judge yeah. anything you've done? We haven't lived your life. We don't know all of the things that are influencing this. And we are really doing the best that we can in all circumstances. I think when you come to therapy, you're given the option of giving yourself permission to be human and to receive support and help. And who wouldn't want that? I often sell therapy to AAPI folks by saying, well, normally we're told to tell God or tell our families. But if those two things are the thing that are making you upset, then what are your other options? And I'm not going to gossip about it because I love my license. You know, for for Philippinex, you know, it's like, oh, I can't be gay because Catholics or, oh, I, you know, have to do what my parents say. And, you know, I'm not going to like disparage values, but I just encourage people like, hey, you were conditioned with a certain kind of programming. Is that still working for you? You have the power to make decisions for yourself in a way that feels aligned and therapists can help achieve that by yeah. being non-judgmental, by knowing what to ask and not making it about us. Who wouldn't want that? And it would be private. No, Nobody's going to know your business, which is not guaranteed with families. That's right. And (laughs) that's why we love therapy. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful resource and and to find it and it's there and most, not all colleges, but a lot of colleges have this resource to use and it's available and, and it's awesome to to hear that Stanford is able to give that to everybody. Yeah. 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 So go seek it out and use it and, and try and take a chance. So that's Mm -hmm. awesome. Christine, thank you so much. If, they want more information or mm-hmm. want to talk to you further. How can they get a hold of you? How, how can they find out more information? Well, I don't have a website because I do have a side private practice that is full and I only see 
students who are enrolled at Stanford, but you can reach my link tree for some links where I'm talking about Philippinex mental health, um, talking about being a woman in the pandemic. So I've, I've been on several awesome. podcasts of Philippinex mental health. So a lot of those links are available on my link tree and I would just encourage you to reach out to the resources that are local to your area. Even if you're not a college student, you can still call the College Counseling Center because they would have information on local resources and they might be willing to share some sliding scale or no scale fees. So there are resources available. It's just a matter of finding them. And reaching out. And I can put those links mm-hmm. on the show notes at the addictedmind.com too sure. so go there and and get them there christine thank you so much for just sharing your passion i can just feel it for these uh-huh. young adults and these students and how it. much you want to help them and it just brings a lot of hope to my heart because these these are the next people that are are coming and, and moving forward and and working to change the world and and when i i hear your story i just I don't know. I get filled with a lot of hope too. It gives me a lot of hope for all of us. So (laughs) I think it's great. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check it out. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I know. I know we've been taught that motherhood requires alcohol. I know we've been taught not to question our relationship with alcohol until we've lost everything. And I know we've been taught that if we do dare to examine our relationship with alcohol, we need to head straight to AA and declare ourselves an alcoholic who is powerless to alcohol forever. But what if all that isn't true? That's definitely not my story. I'm Suzanne, the host of the Sober Mom Life podcast. I'm an influencer who stopped drinking in January 2020, and since then, I've been telling the truth about motherhood, influencing, alcohol, and sobriety. If you suspect deep down that glass or three of wine at night might just be making motherhood harder, well, you're right. Come and join me as I chat with other sober and sober curious moms. Let's laugh, cry, and normalize sobriety together, all while we reheat our coffee for the fourth time today.